previously on Input Output. Ian McKay. Da, 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 da. I don't give a damn about technology, honestly. <gasps> hey, uh, we got to stop this interview right yeah, now. Yeah, that's just crazy. People are like, oh, let's, we, people like this record. Let's go record with that guy at this studio. And then everyone just like, and just goes to the same, everyone does the same thing. It just actually seems really, really discouraging to me. I really love, I love regionalism. I love evolution. I love like my relationship. Like I worked with Dom for so long and just the kind of ease in which, we can work together, and it's always been about relationships and friendships. I don't go to the studio with people I don't know. You know, Eli, all this talking with Ian McKay is reminding me of the first time I ever met you. What? Don Ziantara's basement studio, where you used to work. Don't you remember? Oh, I'm way back. I'm in the basement. It's 1987, and we're like... In high school, it's we're like gonna an graduate. Eight track. I've got eight tracks on half inch, and it's so cool. Where's the bass gonna go? I don't know. Track seven. <laughs> Put it on. An and there track. you were, yeah, the too cool for school engineer guy. Uh huh. And you don't even remember it. No. Because we were high school nerd balls. Yeah. We were too cool. Well, I was, and you were. Anywho, today on Input Output, we have part two of our interview with Ian McKay, and he talks about the ill-fated and infamous Steve Albini Fugazi sessions. The record that never was. Dun, dun. He also talks about his controversial business practices. You know, like charging people a fair price and not trying. Controversial. And we'll, we're going to explore that with Ian coming right up. One last thing I say about recording is that it's always sonic illusion. That yeah, what you're trying mirrors. to do is, a, is bring about in somebody an emotion that they experience when they're in a room with 500 people or with a volume and the experience, but you're trying to get it to come out of like a five inch speaker or an earbud or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. So, what do you, how do you create that sonic illusion? If it's done well, then the seams don't show and it just becomes a fact. And there was a point in time in Fugazi, it was a really I think profound moment where, you know, recording had always been for me documentation. We put so much emphasis on our live show. We were just thinking in terms of capture this, you know, capture the live show. Like we never thought about recording as like a separate entity. It was terribly frustrating for us. Early on, we just were not happy with our records. They were perfectly good records, but it just didn't sound like us to us. Like our shows were so different for yeah. us, partially because we were, just had in our mind that you just capture the the live show, you know, so just get in there and turn up and play loud. But then I think just after years of recording and, and also seeing sort of Don's sort of freedom in the studio, like he would just do the most insane things. And you're like, are you crazy? I don't know if I, <laughs> as an aside, you know, Maya Threat yes, recorded the demo, the first demo. And on that demo, we had done a ver that version of Stepping Stone. We never mixed it because at that point, like you just mix the songs you're going to put on the record and everything else just lived on cassette. When we started working on In My Eyes, we thought, well, let's put that on the In My Eyes single. And I called Don up and I said, listen, you know, can you just mix <laughs> Stepping Stone so I can, you know, so I can just can you rough, rough mix for us because we're thinking about putting it on the record. He said, mm -hmm. sure, come on over. So I went over there later that day and I watched it. Oh, did you do a mix? He's, yeah, yeah. And he plays this thing and it starts out and it's like, it sounds like it's coming through the tiniest little telephone or something. And then slowly like 
I think the bass comes in, or the vocal comes in kind of clean, but everything else sounds weird, and then the bass comes in, and the, the drums, and I was enraged. <laughs> I was like, is this a fucking joke? Are you a fucking joke? Is this a joke? Are you, are you kidding me? But, you know, Don was ahead of the game. You know, he knew, like, to use a studio to, like, you want to leave something to make a mark, mess with it. You're in the, that's what, you, just, you have that and, option. And and I, I'm sure what he said is, no, no, yeah. Yeah, he was really, what, what? And that version now, which is on the record, is actually a classic. I mean, yeah, people totally. talk about that uh, recording. People who know the band, that, that version of Stepping Stone, the way he did that mix is so brilliant. And he really used the tools. He saw it as a medium. And I think that there was a point in time with Fugazi where we finally, we understood that the studio itself was a medium that we could actually play the same way we played our instruments, the way we approached our shows, because shows were also a medium for us. Mm-hmm. But it really wasn't, Red Medicine was the first record where I think that we went into, into like, let's make a record. Man, and that I was a tell you, huge turning point for us. That was a huge turning point for me when I heard that record because Edsel, when we were writing a record that we were going to go and record in England, we were looking for things to be inspired by. And when we heard that, we were like, man, these guys figured it out. They figured out how to do something new and yet still maintain their fundamental fugaziness. Right, and it, was, and it was understanding that the studio itself could be the medium. Not to downplay it, but prior to that, it was almost like it was like a recording booth. Up to that point, we never thought about other ways to record. So the same way with the event, I feel like we actually our first recording we did is even never got released was just I told Don three mics, <laughs> you know, you made him use three <laughs> mics, and, and I like it. You know, it was, it was an interesting recording, but it didn't quite work. And Don said to me, you know, your music is filled with detail, but you're recording it in a way that totally just blurs it out because you're not allowing for the detail to come out. So he really mic'd the crap out of stuff. And actually, I think the new record, I really am really happy. His, his recording on that is incredible. Don is, it sounds great. But I also was really decided, like, you know, the even, yeah, there's a limitation, but at the same time, the recording studio has to be a medium to some degree. You know, I want people to hear it and be like, wow, that's interesting. Or they don't have to love it, but I at least want them to be engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, for God's sake, what's the point otherwise? Philosophically, if you're looking to document something, I always think of Steve Albini as being the guy who champions that as a recording philosophy, and yet the attempt to work with him didn't work. I'm assuming that that's more of a interpersonal thing than a... No, actually, for, that session was one of the greatest sessions we ever did. Steve is you know, a great friend, and that session was one of the most enjoyable sessions I think we ever had. It was so much fun, but we had gone out to electrical... Steve had said to us, hey, you know, I love your band. If you ever want to record, you know, have chords from Song for Free. So we just loaded up two cars and we drove out to Chicago and we were going to record three songs at his place. And we just enjoyed it so much. We recorded 14 or whatever it was. We recorded and mixed in three days. <laughs> it were, oh, it was incredible. And we had the best time. It was one of the really, really enjoyable sessions. And I remember we left and we were so psyched. We were like, this is like a game changer. Like people are going to, their minds are going to be blown. We just thought we'd made the greatest <laughs> record of all time. And 
we left right around 10 o'clock at night. Guy and Brendan were in one car and Joe and I were in the other car. And at some point we were in Ohio, the long, flat, straight, you know, 80 going across Ohio. And I said to Joe, like, should we get this thing a spin? He said, yeah. And I popped a cassette in the deck and we listened to it and like maybe a song or so into it. I was like, I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to hear this. And he's like, yeah, me neither. I'm, it's not sounding very good. So we popped it out. And then we tried to play it again in Pennsylvania. And it's just like, oh, I don't know. It's not feeling good. We you know, woke up the next morning and been, I remember just feeling like, oh, no. Like, the tape didn't sound good. Like, it didn't, wasn't good. And I think at some point, we, you know, we called over to talk to those guys. And, you know, it was like, hey. Like, hey. <laughs> so how would you drive? Pretty good. Did you uh, listen to the tape? Did you? Did you? Like, what about you? Did you? Yeah, I guess. What about you? What do you think? Uh, we were all four of us like, it's not, it wasn't good. It didn't, it didn't work. Like, huh. in the studio, it was incredible. And then actually, Albini, you know, he sent a note and said, like, not, it just wasn't working. I don't know. It just didn't work. It was something not right. Yeah. But the song, it was, a great, it was a great way to kind of, you know, we got <clears throat> to those songs and then, you know, we went back in with Ted and we did the record and really changed the approach. Yeah, that's an example of like, there's a lot of detail in our songs that just went missing because of the way we recorded it. And it wasn't just like Steve's vision. It was like, our, it was recording and mixing 14 songs in three days. Yeah. But also, it was in the old place. It was at his house in the basement and he loves like drums and he loves guitars. And, you know, it was really bombastic. He had a mic at the top of the stairs and it's just like, you know, the room is the room is the room. Yeah. So like, you can't get around that. And uh, just the, the residents of that room can sound incredible or it can just dominate the sound. And um, I think with, you know, when we recorded at Don's, we did the songs again. With Ted, you know, there was, we spent a lot of time trying to make it warmer and, and kind of just getting the songs, changing the way, the, the balance of the song to, get, to make them more intimate. You know, we actually not so long ago considered releasing the Albini session and I was talking to a, a really good friend of mine and he just said, why are you, why are you putting this out? And I said, Oh, it just, you know, it seemed like people were interested. Historical like, well, document. Yeah. But if it's not, wasn't good enough then it's like, it's right. It's like, just let, it's just let's out there. People can hear it. It's on the line. It's just slightly less realized versions of the same songs. Right. So right. whatever. But I have to say that it was a great experience and Steve, it was really, you know, in terms of our friendship, it was like really formative for the, the, the band and Steve and, you know, somebody who I still, I totally respect and love. I really want to touch on this subject about money and how musicians make money or whether they make money these days. Right. Since the landscape has changed so much. We've been talking to people about recordings and one of the things that I've seen a few times, there's a sense or people try to put forth an argument that because the music industry has always ripped off artists, that it's okay for people to download music because they're, you know, sticking it to the man, quote unquote, kind of thing. What do you think about that, Ian? Because, you know, you're always sticking it to the man, as, I, as you know. <laughs> um, I don't really see it as necessarily, I mean, there's no question that the industry is abusive. They're taking money every which way they can. 
any way they can make money, anything they can do, any lemon they can squeeze, they're going to fucking squeeze it. <laughs> yeah. That's just a game. That's America, though. In my mind, downloading songs, like, yeah, it's just a reality. That's the medium. And that, if it's there, people are going to do it. I mean, I, there's plenty of times I didn't buy records. I just had cassettes of them. I don't think it's a political act. Like, that's kind of a, a weird rationale. I prefer to just say, like, I want to hear the song. I don't feel like paying for it. Or it's just more convenient, which is the truth. It's a lot easier just to go to YouTube and listen to the song there if you just want to hear the song. Right, yeah. And that's yeah. fine. That's totally, it's totally fine. I actually, like, every song I ever wrote, I wrote to be heard. Mm-hmm. So if people, if that's the way people are going to hear it, that's fair enough. Now, to counter that, you know, this idea of everything should be free. Like, people who have this concept now with it, like with this technological revolution that now we just aren't going to pay for music. Okay, have fun with the advertising because that's like, that's it. Like there's going to be two, there's two realities. Music is going to be suffused with advertising. And if you really want free music that has no advertising involved whatsoever, have fun with the past. Like the only music that could possibly be free is a music that's already been recorded. It costs money to record. That's just the yeah. reality. So if people are insisting that they're never going to pay for music, then they have to accept one of those two new paradigms. And I think the advertising thing has been is already clear. I mean, the media has done its job saying over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that the only way an artist can make money is by doing ads, which is total fucking nonsense. But the advertising <laughs> companies love it. But in terms of new music, I have to say that it can't be stopped. So I'm not that worried about it. Like you can't, there's no way to stop water. It's coming. And there are people who are going to be interested. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's a shift in the way that things have worked. That's okay. We just happen to be president for it. How did things felt back in like 1905? Prior to that, there was no way to monetize music other than you could pay to see some play it, or you could buy sheet music, I guess, or a piano roll, you know, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, I guess before the Gutenberg press, then, you know, and player pianos were invented, you, you know, you just had to kick a coin to the lute player. So, um, <laughs> you know, I feel like, imagine the shock to the, the system back when suddenly these guys came along and said like, we're selling plastic and we're going to infuse your music on our plastic and we're going to become fabulously wealthy and we'll kick you some, <laughs> we'll kick you a, full, a, a few points as well. You know, they had a hundred year monopoly. They did good for themselves, really, really well for themselves and some musicians, not most. Yeah. So I kind of feel like that, you know, if music could be shut down because of lack of funds, if such a thing could occur, then we might be in trouble. But music can't be stopped. And I think that there's always going to be people interested, maybe fewer, and maybe maybe bands are going to have to play shows. And, you know, they can't just live off their royalties. you got to remember that you guys know that when you hear something like, you know, are you doing shows to promote the record? How did that happen? Like, how did the record become the point? Why aren't people playing out records to promote the shows? Well, that's what they're doing now. But that, right, that's exactly. But historically, it was all the way around. To me, that was sick. Put the people on the stage, you know. And I understand for recording, you know, it's tricky, but it's not going to stop because people are not going to stop writing music, and they're not going to they're not going to stop needing other people to help them figure out how to realize this music in an honored form. I mean, the computers have their limitations, even if they don't like to think they do. <laughs> but if anything, just having somebody who knows his or her way around the machine is always going to be of value, and they're just going to have to adapt like everyone else. With Discord. It seems like that's something that you just sort of fell into and it evolved over time in an organic way. So Mm -hmm. we were talking to um, 
a guy named Jeremy Devine who owns who has a company called Temporary Residence, and he's put out a lot of records. And he kind of made the point that yes, now it's exactly what you said that the the, the shows are kind of where people can make their money, and the and the, and the records are promotion for the shows. But the label paid for the record, and the label pays for the promotion. So mm-hmm. the label can't continue to do that if they're not right. making any kind That's of. That's right. Yeah, and you don't see a lot of steam engines going around either, do you? Nope, nope. So, so that's where we're at. We're at whips and buggies. Sure. Why not? I mean, that's always been that's it's always yeah. happening. I mean, I don't know what to say. Like Discord, in our case, like we are a historical. We're a historical label. We have like you know four bands that play shows. They're not big. Well, it's all historical stuff. Either people are into it or not. And if they're not, then we'll shut the joint down. But thus far. There's enough people out there. There's eight billion people in the world. You know, if we can sell, right. we're happy we can sell a thousand records. Fans. That's not that hard to do <laughs> if you make something that's of some interest. And this, it's you know, it's just art. What can you do? Uh, so you think labels are going to go away? Well, there's something going to re- be redefined. But I actually think that labels will always have a role as, as curators, right? Because one of the, the one of the biggest drawbacks of the internet is that it's it's an ocean. Yeah. And you know where the good the good fishing spots are. And if someone says, "Hey, here's a batch of stuff that's good because we said so," and then you actually go over there and you're like, "Wow, this is good." Then you want to hear more. I mean, Danger House Records from Los Angeles. Speaking of the Dills, there's this record called Class War by the Dills, and it was a 198 seconds of the Dills. It was the record was called, and it was this incredible record. I listened to it over and over and over. And the label was so it was out of L.A. And I thought, this is such a cool label. And I, and I found like another, we found another record, like the Weirdos or whatever, the Eyes, all these bands I mentioned earlier. They're all on the same label. And every record, if it wasn't something that I loved, I still respected it. I was interested in it because they, there was some sense to it. There was some context. And I think that role will become actually, increasingly become more and more needed. And so I think labels do have a role. More now than ever, there's a place for curative things that come together. That's why blogs are actually succeeding, I think, you know, the way they are. Right. That goes back to the same point where blogs have advertising and that's why they right. they like giving the stuff away for free because they, then they get people to look at their ads, but labels don't have that. So how you're saying that they could curate... I think there will be a form, some, there's something will take a shape. I don't, know what I don't there. know if there'll be, you know, be one person or, you know, the problem is there's no, if there's nothing to sell, then you can't, yeah, right, you, right. how you generate the money. But we still sell stuff here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, you know, right now, like my entire five people across the street packing boxes right now. So yeah. enough people are buying them. It's just not in the same magnitude. I mean, let's put it this way. In the early 90s, like our smallest band were selling five to 10,000 records. Yeah. And now, like, we're happy to sell a thousand or something, but we're happy about it. Because <laughs> for me, it doesn't make a difference. All that matters to me is that if 10,000 people want the record, I don't want to make 1,000. And if you know, 1,000 people want a record, I don't want to make 10,000. That's the only equation. Mm-hmm. Just figure it out. Like, figure out how many people out there want it. Or willing to pay for it, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Willing to pay for it. We talk about a piece of plastic with paper around it, right? Mm-hmm. If 10,000 people want that, don't make 1,000 of them. If they want it, they mean they'll buy it. You know, the music is already out there. So we're talking about the plastic here. But as long as people want to buy the plastic, then I'm happy to sell it to them because I, I also buy the plastic. So there's a Fugazi song up there. All of your records, you can go find it on YouTube, no problem. And then they're selling advertising right. on the side there. Now, Fugazi made a very you know, conscious decision to avoid. 
we said whenever we whenever we see an ad stuck on like a clip of ours, anything that's ours, we we try to shut it down. They can run it for free, but they can't use it to advertise something else, like banner ads, and they just can't, they just can't yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. That's pretty simple. That's just wrong. One of our things has been seen like, I don't know, a million times or something. There was an ad on there for, I don't know, Miller, beer, I don't know what it was, something. And so we were looked into it and it was like, oh yeah, that guy's getting paid for the views. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like I look at his channel, right? And it's like, you know, a Fugazi thing and like a get up kids thing. And then a bunch of videos of him and his friends skating around. And I thought, I can't, I can't imagine this kid arranged to make a deal like this. We were able to discover that a third party had placed that ad. They're like pirates. They just fucking were collecting money for these plays. Basically, they just do shit, and then if you catch them, they'll pay right. you. Right. And that is, it's just a wild west. That's yeah. just the way they're operating. Girls Against Boys has the same issue because some of the videos are touch and goes, some of them are geffens, you know, like there's compilation stuff that we've done. Right. There's nobody policing it, of course, because everybody from those labels is gone. Right. And so Google, at the very least, is making money off of all those ads. Right. It's a full-time job to police that. And who yeah, the hell wants who to spend could... all their time looking online to see who's right. you know, raping your ad content for... The thing is, you can police it. In our case, we know it's all one house. Right. That was the benefit of the arrangement. We never licensed anything out. We didn't know the label involved. Like we have all the masters. Never was represented by anybody. We don't think it's all in one. We never did a publishing deal. Like so, it's all we know. And you can tell it's pretty easy actually to check because you can search under views and accounts. They're not going to put a, a banner ad up on something unless it's a hundred thousand plus or something. There's no money in it. There's right, just nothing right. there. So you can kind of catch these things out. But in your case, Eli, because of the sort of oh, nebulous oh. nature of the of the band, yeah, it's screwed. You're, you know, it's, it's confusing. But for us, it's because of our arrangement is just so finite, mm-hmm. which I think is probably part of you know it all ties into my whole <laughs> thing. I just want to keep it keep it simple. You know, I think probably the trade off is that there's probably you know things that you know I didn't get to do because I didn't go on the tour bus or something. Honestly, I could have made a lot <laughs> Drugs, more money. Strippers, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Other people I know who are selling less records to me made far more money than I did, but but they spend it all. Right, but who cares? I mean, ultimately, I still have my records. Like, I know where they are. They're upstairs right now. <laughs> like all the tapes, I got them. You know. I even have some of your tapes. (laughs) I thought it was interesting when you said that Discord is a historical label, and there was a point in time which I don't know that you viewed it that way. Maybe you did. I recently, I realized that, you know, basically, we just don't have that many active bands. What we have is an awful lot of records from the past. And every one of those bands, keep in mind, we never have used a single contract ever with anybody. Every one of those bands has entrusted us with their music this entire time. Some of them now for 30 years, we've been putting out their records. And I send them royalty checks every six months to this day, like $40 here, $22 there, maybe $100 depending, but we don't sell that many records, but the point is that we account. But those people, all these bands, every band on Discord, those people entrusted us with their music. I have the tapes still. They said, okay, you know, we're part of this and we trust you. So that trust has allowed, you know, specifically me, but I think other people involved to really live 
a life that's very unusual. <laughs> you know, I still, my, my life is different. And in recent years with the declining sales and, and sort of also having done it for so long, there was a moment where I was like, well, you know, hmm, you know, maybe it's time to shuffle on. But then I realized that, you know, just because now things aren't flying out the door, it doesn't mean, I realize now more than ever that I have a custodial responsibility in the sense that as long as there are people out there who, who want to hear these records, then the deal is I'm, I should make it available to them. They want to buy the records, not just hear them. They want to buy vinyl or CD or whatever. I feel like I have a responsibility to make those things available, and especially Fugazi, because of all the bands on the label, the two best-selling bands are Fugazi and Meyer Thread, period. When Meyer Thread broke up in 1983, we had sold, like at that point, 5,000 records or something. I mean, now it's, you know, close to a million. My threat, it wasn't some decision like, you know, like, well, should we go, you know, it was like 5,000 records. Fugazi, on the other hand, was selling hundreds of thousands of records and, was, and we were being actively courted by labels who were offering us enormous amounts of money. And the band collectively decided, it was unanimous, to stay with Discord. So I feel that this label has a deep and abiding responsibility to look after that catalog. And I believe the last dollar that we spent should be spent making a Fugazi record. You know, I'm obviously in the band, but I'm speaking right. as a, on behalf of the label right now. That band, it made it possible for us to do what we've done. We couldn't have survived, couldn't have operated the way we operated without, without that band. There's no question. You know, I went to them and said, listen, you know, I don't want there to be a conflict of interest. Obviously, I'm a co-owner of Discord Records. You know, if you feel like it's, there's a conflict, I think we should consider going to Touch and Go. As a member of the band... I'm prepared to do what's best for the band. But they were, they're adamant about the label. They're totally committed to the label. And in return, the label has to be committed to them. Right, you have to take care of that. Right, you got um, to honor that. So, so I think at some point, I thought, all right, it's a, it's a historical label now. Like it's, I have to think of it in terms of it, like a blues label or, you know, or folkways or whatever. But also to continue to act in the spirit of approaching things the way we, we as a label or as a band would do. Like to be thoughtful and, and punk, you know, to do things, <laughs> to think about it and try to do the thing that people say you can't do. That's always been interesting to me. And they tell you, yeah, you can do that now. You can charge $5 now, but you can't charge it later. Really? Fucking check back with me later. There's a guy who writes a, like a music industry letter called the Left Sets Letter that somebody turned me on to recently. And sometimes I think he's a total tool, but he wrote this whole thing about, he's been going on and on about how the Stones are like, you know, the greediest bastards and how they suck and how the guy that's turning it around in the sort of that level of band is actually Kid Rock, who's managed to negotiate with all the people in the food chain for $20 tickets at arenas. Right. And it's kind of amazing because I wanted to write this guy and say, hey, have you ever heard of Fugazi? Because, I mean, they kind of had the same idea like 20 years ago. Exactly the same idea. We definitely negotiated with directly with Ticketmaster. Before the Pearl Jam, I mean, Pearl Jam's flat doodle was... Ticketmaster was came after ours. I actually was on the phone with Fred Rosen, who was the president of Ticketmaster, along with some help with a friend of ours, this Rick Van Santen, who was a part of the Golden Voice. You know, we were doing five dollar shows, and Ticketmaster was charging three dollars and fifty cents service charge, which is absurd. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's it. I <laughs> heard nothing. God. <laughs> the first venue we had that was using Ticketmaster on that particular tour was was Chicago, and. It was a Vic. Someone said they're charging three fifty for service charge, and I was like, "What?" Because like up to that point, I you know maybe a buck, maybe you know a couple other towns ahead of us were going to be using Ticketmaster too. So I called up 
Rick Van Sant and Golden Voice and said, oh, by the way, Ticketmaster's fired. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? I said, like, I, you know, that's just, it's, you can't have a $3.50 service charge on a $5 ticket. That's absurd. And he said, yeah, but, you know, people who live in L.A., they go buy a ticket. You know, you have to drive like two hours. People would pay three fifty to avoid driving two hours to go to a record store in town. They live out in the valley or something, you know. So we went back and forth about it. And he said, listen, would you? I said, I'll consider doing this, but they have to bring down the price. So he went to speak with them to Fred Rosen and there's this long discussion when we went back and forth, but then they said, okay, if you're doing five bucks for you guys, we'll do a dollar or a dollar and a quarter, depending on the market. And that seemed reasonable for the convenience of people who had to, especially in Fugazi shows sold out and we were having problems with kids driving six hours to get to a show that was sold out. So the idea of being able to secure a ticket seemed fair enough. In any event, we definitely negotiated with them and with Ticketmaster, we had to negotiate because they had their standing policy. The venues was not really negotiable. That's what we were charging. If they couldn't, if they couldn't do it, then we weren't playing their venue. That's why we didn't play in Boston proper for a decade. We ran to this one, the main production company there, and this would not yield. Cause they knew by yielding, then it was opening the door for other people to name the ticket price, and they didn't want to do that. That was Don Law people. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was a war. Our our tactic was just not to play in the city, so we played all around the city. But in any event, the difference is if you lead with your amount of money you want to make then you don't really have a say in what you can charge. If you leave with the amount of money you want to charge, then you can have a say in what, you can, what you're going to make. I mean, the problem with the Kid Rock equation, this is a real problem. It's a, it's a secondary ticket market. You know, 20 bucks. Like people will gladly pay, you know, probably 100 bucks to see Kid Rock, right? So, like, Fugazi, we had a big problem with bootleggers. You know, or, or, Scalpers, yeah, yeah. Right. right. That's that's the Stones argument as well. We charge 600 bucks a ticket because that's what the scalpers are going to get. So right. why should they get it? It's a secondary market, which is also, if you haven't read that, there's an incredible piece about the Springsteen situation where, you know, he tried to do $90 tickets or $75 tickets, whatever. And it was like this incredibly cheap and they sold out like in three minutes. But then it turned out that it wasn't that the tickets sold out, that yeah. like a significant portion of them went right into the secondary ticket yeah it's so fucked up yeah they so just, the bands get none of that yeah. right it's just yeah you know, i guess maybe people should play shittier music so nobody wants to see them and that way we won't have this problem <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much ian been a blast thank you very very much all right i gotta go all right yeah. ian thanks thanks ian. Bye. bye 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 Well, that's it for Input Output. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Sanoff. And I'm Eli Janney. We want to thank our producer, Justin Coletti. You can trust that man because he is a scientist. Hey, trust him. And we want to thank sonicscoop.com, which this show is produced in conjunction with. Please write to us at inputoutputpodcast at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. We are reading those. Check us on Facebook. We have a lot to say, and we want you to listen. <laughs> Check it out, yo. We're so awesome. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Input. Output.